Welcome to Inside the Pipe, the industrial refrigeration podcast that covers the work, lifestyle, and hazards of a career in natural refrigeration, where we love the smell of ammonia and hate the smell of sulfur. Here's your host, Joshua Reese. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the eighth podcast of Inside Your Inside Your Pipe. <laughs> Inside the Pipe. Um, I am your host, Joshua Reese, and I'm glad that you're tuning in today or you know, whenever you're tuning in. Um, so I've had a pretty uneventful week. Uh, getting a bunch of quotes out, had a compressor take a shit. Um, you know, so business is good. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk about one thing and I want feedback from the industry. I am not a fan of VFDs on evaporators and I'll tell you why. We all know that anytime you decrease a load across an evaporator, what happens? You're going to have liquid flooding back, li- more liquid fl- flooding back, right? So we are, our, our evaporators in the industrial refrigeration industry are designed at a zero degree superheat, right? So <clears throat> that means that there is liquid coming back through our suction line. It's a combination of liquid and vapor. Okay, so we've got these fans that are cycling down. What happens when you restrict air across a coil? You start getting liquid flooding back. Um, So in my experience, evaporators that have or systems that have VFDs on the evaporators typically have horrible floodback issues. And what I have contributed that to was, I guess that they don't, like once the VFDs start ramping down, liquid starts building up inside the coal, you start uh, overfeeding more than what you're intentionally trying to overfeed, and you start getting a shit ton of liquid back to the, uh, to the recirculator. And, um, you know, normally it was on shutdown. Whenever I, whenever I saw this, it was whenever the plant shut down, everything would operate great. But when the plant would shut down, I would get high levels on my recirculators. So that would tell me that our recirculators aren't sized correctly for the surge volume. So maybe, you know, well, nonetheless, I just kind of want to start this conversation in the industry because I don't think anybody does it like you should do it. Um, I think that if you are going to have VFDs on an evaporator, that you need some kind of liquid management, right? So when you go to the commercial side of refrigeration, they put VFDs on their evaporators. And what happens? You have a TXV, which controls the superheat, right, uh, uh, back from the suction line. So the valve automatically opens and closes to maintain the liquid level in a direct expansion evaporator. We don't have that in flooded systems. So I think that if you were going to put VFDs on your evaporators, you need some way to manage the amount of liquid that's going in that coil. So my solution, which it could be a dumb solution, I don't know. So I, I again, I would love some feedback on this, but my solution would either to A, put a Danfoss superheat control on there, superheat controller with an ICAD valve, right? That that um, you can set at like a very small um, superheat. So let's just say a half a degree of superheat. So it will always be underfeeding just a little bit. Um, or you could punch a hole in the top of this suction header on the evaporator and drop down a Danfoss uh, level controller and then set your level um, to or the ICAD valve to uh, maintain a level in there that would uh, you know that would be a good level for evaporation to still occur. So, you know, I would really love, I've had this conversation with a few people, and I would really love to get some feedback from you guys on what you think should be done. If you think that it's good, I want to know why. If you think that it's a shitty design, I would like to have that conversation. One thing that you really have to uh, pay attention to is the fact that 
um, you know, I would assume that it would affect the kilowatt usage of the compressors because it's much more difficult to bring liquid back, even with your line sloped, right? If you were sucking on a straw, is it easier to pull air through it? Or if you stick it in some liquid and you started just like, if you just barely put the straw into the liquid, wouldn't it, wouldn't it take a little bit more force to suck that back? Um, so I think that there's several different issues that go on there. I think that you can, um, I think that you can not only see issues with, uh, with flooding back, but you could also see a potential kilowatt increase on the compressor. Um, if it's sucking back liquid or more liquid than what it's designed to do. That's typically one of my major concerns with facilities. If I go into a facility, the one thing I like to see, I, I, for, the first thing I ask for is an MEB. Um, I, I wanna see the energy balance sheet because I wanna see what the system was designed at. Through years of service techs coming in and fucking with systems or, or operators that really don't know what they're doing, messing with systems, you, once you get outside of those operating parameters, that's all kilowatt, kilowatts that you're just dumping down the drain. You're just pissing money away. So I, I have uh, an infatuation with making sure that systems are running as designed. If you think about it, um, refrigeration systems is one of the main kilowatt users out there, right? So you, they, we take it takes a lot of energy to run these systems, and when they're not running correctly, they're you know if you're overfeeding a bunch of evaporators or you're running too low of a suction pressure, all of that stuff costs money unnecessary money. So, you know, when, when you are looking at your facility, the first thing you ask your boss, say, Hey, do we have an MEB? Go through the MEB, the mechanical energy balance sheet, and make sure your entire system is running like it's supposed to. Make sure the suction pressure is great. Go through your system, set the hand expansion valves. If you live up north, have a winter and a summer operation. You know, all of that stuff plays in into the utility bill, um, you know, for the refrigeration system. And you can really, you could really get a feather in your cap if you can go to somebody and say, hey, this is where we're spending money. We could cut back here. And you can really see some pretty major changes with, uh, with utilities if you just keep, you know, the, the design in mind. These systems were designed to run specific suction pressures, um, specific TDs across the evaporator, and you should be getting those, you know, at, at all times. So, uh, being energy conscious when it comes to a refrigeration system is always a great thing. All right, so let's get into today's guest. Um, today we are talking with Rick Harding who is the senior consultant at Process uh, Safety Solutions. He brings a lot of experience. He was actually um, one of the, I don't know if he was one of the first um, OSHA inspectors to uh, to inspect like as far as, uh, you know, refrigeration facilities and come helping manage the the PSM program at least from from the OSHA's perspective um but the, I mean I'm telling you this dude has a ton of experience it was a great conversation um it sounds like he really knows how to keep you out in trouble so let's go ahead and get into it Rick Harding how is it going man oh not too bad how are you doing Josh I'm doing pretty good. It's been uh, I'm I'm over the winter. I'm I'm sick of the of the temperatures. I'm I'm up in Tennessee, so we get a little bit of the cold weather coming down here, and I'm just I'm bored with it. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Wisconsin, so um, I'm kind of oh. used to the cold weather. But we've been in Texas for so long that um, I just don't. Uh, I don't uh, like the cold weather that much anymore. But we tend to do a lot of work up there, so not that nice. much fun. No, it's not. So, Rick, let's, uh, you know, this is a podcast that I was really excited about doing because you're going to offer a unique um, perspective that we really don't get to see, um, uh, you know, from the from the service side of, of things. So, um, you know, just real quickly, I'd like to go through your background. Like, how'd you get into, you know, PSM and, and 
you know, what brought you to where you're at now? Well, uh, it, it goes back a number of years, actually. Uh, when I first uh, started into PSM was back in, in uh, probably in the 90s, but even before PSM was actually uh, promulgated. Uh, mm-hmm. Just from a background standpoint, I was, uh, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer by education. I started to work for Monsanto Chemical Company shortly out of college mm-hmm. and, uh, well, actually right after college and, and worked uh, my way through to, uh, various roles and responsibilities within the, the, that company, including, uh, you know, uh, project engineering and then, of course, in a production role as well. And uh, as a result, as, as PSM was starting to be uh, talked about quite a bit, uh, we had a team there at uh, Monsanto uh, that was providing input to OSHA as they were building the regulation. So I was part of that team, and so I got in some early uh, uh, information, I guess, if you will, and, and understanding as to why and and where everything was coming from. So. So really, uh, since that point in time, when um, when we got involved early, then in in '92 uh, when it was when it was issued, uh, I was part of uh, the teams that kind of helped roll it out through Monsanto as well. Uh, didn't do everything within within PSM at that point in time, uh, but got involved, especially in the process safety information side, the PHAs, et cetera, that we were already doing there anyway. Yeah. So. So certainly that was the early part, and and then you know various roles since that time uh, that involves somewhat PSM, maybe from an engineering perspective again process safety information. Uh, then in uh, uh, you know various uh, roles like I said from that point on, and then in 2015 I'm sorry that's 2010 I took on a role uh, with OSHA. Mm as a PSM specialist with OSHA in the, the Houston North office, but actually worked uh, throughout uh, the the U.S., uh, including, uh, fortunately for me, Hawaii. Uh, got to spend a little bit of time in Hawaii doing <laughs> no, PSM that's horrible. inspection. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's actually the funny the thing, the way it worked out is is they wanted me to come over there and do a, a PSM inspection of a refinery there. And uh, once we got there, we found out the uh, facility already had a NEP inspection conducted uh, several years prior to that. So rather than waste my, uh, my time there, they asked me if I'd be willing to do the PSM inspections uh, of some of their PSM covered facilities on the various islands. So I got to go to all of the islands and spend a couple wow. of weeks. So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was rough. My my wife said she she got to spend a couple of weeks with me, but she had come back. She was a school teacher. She wasn't happy with me, but yeah, I bet. Yeah, but it's a good not, assignment. Yeah, I have not been. Um, that is one place that I have not been, but I would I would love to ha- have the opportunity to do so. Um, probably not as an inspector, but um, you know more for vacation. <laughs> uh, so let's get into. I, I want to talk about um, you becoming an ocean inspector, because I think that the, you know, the listeners are probably going to get the most out of that. How did things go as an OSHA inspector? What are some of the things that the, that you would look for? Um, you know, because in my experience, I've had a lot of inspectors that I've come across that did not know PSM. Um, so, you know, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, and I'm gonna just gonna back up just a little bit too, and and one of the reasons, uh, you know, that OSHA wanted me to come work for them was was they they recognized when they were doing the refinery inspections, I believe that they, they didn't have the area of expertise that they needed to do those inspections, and and as a result, you know, they started hiring engineers with experience and knowledge in the process industry, mm-hmm. and. And so when I first started working with OSHA um, and, you know, teaching and coaching, mentoring in, in the inspection phase and understanding what to look for in PSM covered facilities, you know, I recognized early on that most of the people that were doing these inspections really didn't have a full understanding what uh, you would even do in the process industry or ammonia refrigeration industry for that matter and what and what was important to look for and then once you determine what to look for 
what determined whether or not you had a violation of a regulation or not. Uh, mm-hmm. So as you know, uh, you know, especially in the ammonia refrigeration industry, uh, the rega gaps have, have developed over time, especially in the last 10, 10 yeah. years or so. There really weren't a whole lot of regulations uh, uh, pertinent to the ammonia refrigeration industry. So, mm-hmm. so therefore, uh, you know, it was a hit and miss as to what uh, to look for. Uh, now, however, uh, there, there are certainly a lot more uh, concise uh, consensus standards out there like IAR and, uh, yeah. you know, ASHRAE, et cetera, that, that you can go by. Mm-hmm. Um, so, however, I don't think the inspection folks uh, with OSHA have kept up with that. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, you know, it's very common and we see it quite often still today where where you have uh, OSHA inspector coming into a facility to do a uh, an NEP and they really have no idea what they're looking for or what to look for for that matter. Um, and quite frankly, that that does a disservice to to not only OSHA, but it also does a disservice to our industry as a whole yeah. because what we need to be able to do is first and foremost is to protect the employees in these facilities. Um, you know, a lot of times we say that tongue in cheek and, and where uh, we say it, but we don't mean it. Yeah. And, and until something happens to one of your loved ones or somebody like that, it, it really doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to us. Yeah. And I think uh, more than anything, as an OSHA inspector, I got to see that portion of it. You know, I was able to unfortunately speak to to parents that had lost loved ones, to, to yeah. husbands or wives that had lost loved ones and and wanted an answer as to why. And yeah. and so I think what I do specifically in, in the PSM arena, whether it's in ammonia refrigeration or any other of the industries that we work in. It's making sure that people understand this isn't about regulatory requirements. It's about doing, number one, the right thing. And and number two, making sure that we make it easy for people to do that right thing. So many yeah. times it's so freaking hard to do the right thing that, that uh, people just don't do it. And, and sometimes, <clears throat> and we all do this, yeah. If if we've got something that's hard to do, we'll think of a hundred ways to to get out of doing it. Right? Yeah, most certainly. So, yep. so uh so what our job, and that's what I look at as my job as a consultant, uh, is looking at ways to make or or creating solutions that help people to do the right thing. And like I said, regardless of whether or not OSHA um is has the the expertise to to uh, determine whether whether we're in regulatory compliance or not. At the end of the day, it's doing the right thing, and if we do the right thing, I believe uh, regulatory uh, requirements take care of themselves. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. I mean, I, I've been I've been in the industry for over twenty years now, and one thing that you know, I've even had some companies that were just really hardcore on safety, but when it came to production or manufacturing or something like that. A lot of that does get scooted under the rug, you know, if there's and, and you start doing more unsafe things and 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 that's just whenever accidents start happening, you know, as far as the citation goes there, you know, it's just a, a money thing to them. Right. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, and we talk about that quite often where, yes, we can look at an OSHA citation right now is at $14,000 or pretty close to. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, but at the same time, we've done uh, some uh, surveys to help understand what what organizations or facilities spend in PSM management and managing their PSM programs. And it would kind of surprise you. You know, I've had uh, surveys that come back and show that they only spend $4,000 a year. And you have to laugh at that number. Um and then you have other organizations that spend, uh, you know, uh, upwards of fifty to to hundred thousand dollars a year, which I believe is more likely the amount. Yeah. Uh, but I think we have to be careful on on how we look at those numbers as well. 
you know, those numbers don't necessarily reflect what we've actually done in terms of PMs and, and yeah. inspections and tests and stuff like that, which they probably should, because if we're doing, again, we're doing the right things, we're doing all of those things. And those should be what we uh, evaluate, not just the, the citation. Yes, the citation is important. Nobody wants a citation. Man, I don't want a citation when I'm driving 55 in a in a 55 yeah. zone either. But yeah. Because I tend to get them when I'm driving 60 or 70 <laughs> in the 55 zone. So, yeah. But, yeah. I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just going to say, yeah, I think we put too much emphasis uh, in our industry, puts too much emphasis on the this OSHA citation, again, it goes back to, you know, we need to think about what, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do for my employees? And if it means I have to spend, you know, $15,000 a year to avoid a $14,000 uh, citation, well, if that's the way you want to look at it by doing the right thing, then okay, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, there's varying levels of uh, of responsibility that people take, you know, when it comes to PSM. I see it all the time. I've got some customers that are trying their best to stay right up under that 10,000 pounds, but don't understand that you, you, you know, you're still held, held accountable, you know, by the general duty clause. And you have, you know, anything you, you have to have a safe working environment. It doesn't matter that you're under the 10,000 pounds. Um, and, and that seems to be their main focus. Like even when adding equipment, oh, or is this going to take us over the limit? I, I mean, I think that they need a shift in perspective, but what would that be? How would you approach that as far as like, if you were trying to get a customer away from, you know, trying to stay under the limit so that they don't have, or in their minds, they don't have to follow a certain rule. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what, what would be, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean that's a good point, Josh, and and we get that quite often. Is we'll get that question: is if I get below ten thousand pounds, will will OSHA leave me alone? Well, that goes back to what we just said a few minutes ago: is what is your focus? If your focus is to getting uh, the government off your back, uh, yeah, that might be a, a good approach to doing it. But does that mean you're going to stop doing the things that you need to do to to protect your employees? So yeah. yes, I'm I'm all in favor of if we can reduce our inventories, even if it's getting you below ten thousand pounds, that's a good thing because you're mm -hmm. reducing risk. And the more we can reduce risk, the better, right? Yeah. So and that ought to be the focus is not reducing uh, the ammonia inventory to get below the threshold of ten thousand pounds. It should be getting below or reducing our inventories to reduce the risk. And if that is our focus, then that's the right place to be. Um, and, and again, that's doing the right thing. And again, if we're doing the right thing, regulations take care of themselves and, and we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. You know, OSHA is like all encompassing. Like I've, I had, when I took my mechanical contractors test, you have that big old fat OSHA book that you have to go through. Um, and one of the things that always stuck, stuck out in my mind whenever I met one of the inspectors is the, the, I have yet to meet an inspector that really knew what was going on, you know, especially with a, a refrigeration system. A lot of times they'll hit, the, the standard, okay, your PRVs are out of date or, or something like that. But it, it, to me, that that's, I don't think that that would be a good inspection, you know, as far as, for, you know, from a compliance standpoint. Um, so do, I mean, do they send certain people with experience to do these certain things or is it just whoever's available? Yeah, I would say it's the latter. They send who's ever available. Now, yeah. There are limited number of inspectors within the OSHA, uh, within OSHA itself, that have the knowledge and experience uh, to to address what you're talking about. It, that they can actually come in and understand what a, a ammonia refrigeration system does, how they work, and where to be looking in terms of mechanical integrity mm -hmm. to where your gaps are. Um, for example, I, you know, if I go into a motor refrigeration system, yeah, cer certainly we're going to look at things like your RVs are out of date, but, but we're going to go beyond that because that's where yeah. the issue is. Beyond that is, have you done the sizing correctly? Have you sized those relief valves correctly? And you'd be surprised how many are not. Uh, secondly, 
uh, do their relief headers actually been sized correctly? And again, you could believe a lot of them are not. You yeah. know, um, use the wrong application of of the uh, the uh, the regulatory requirements. And you know, for example, they're doing this uh, calculation to determine the, the the length. Well, that's fine and good if it's one RV and not going into a common header. But if it's going to a common header that equation is invalid. You have to do much mm-hmm. more than that. You have to iterate to get to the right solution uh, for yeah. that. So, yeah. so again, that's looking beyond just, uh, you know, the, the date on the RV. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the second thing is, is, is going into mechanical integrity inspections and tests uh, as well. Are they doing the right things? You know, for example, testing and calibrating their, their uh, transducers and cutouts, et cetera. Are they doing it correctly or are they just uh, saying we've done them? You have to have documentation showing results Um, rather than, yes, we did it. uh, We passed, it failed. Uh, We have to go beyond that because PSM or process safety management is actually managing your process. It's not managing you. You need to manage your process and, of course, manage the hazards and the risk associated with that too. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious what would what would be considered the correct way um, to like calibrate a, a pressure transducer? Like, what can we, can you give an example of the wrong way of of ways you've seen it, and and what what you would be expecting? Well, first of all, the wrong way. Uh, you know, we can go back to pre 2014 IAR two. Prior to that, you couldn't put a stop valve, for example, between the relief uh, between the transducer yeah. and uh, the uh, the process. As a result, the only way that you could actually do that is to either one close uh, the discharge valve, which you know uh, is not very safe to begin with. Why in the yeah. world somebody would want to do that is beyond me. Uh, the the second thing you might do is 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 shut down the, the process and then use some other means to pump up that transducer, which is not very uh, easy to do or it's not conducive yeah. of, of a safe environment either. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the second option and uh, what I we would see quite often is people would just change the set point. So if the set point was 220 on most of them, so they'd uh, dial it down to the operating uh, set point, uh, change the set point on the on the on the interlock or the cutout to whatever mm-hmm. the operating pressure was and test it that way. Well, that doesn't, all that does is test whether or not the cutout actually works, but it doesn't yeah. tell you whether or not it worked at the pr- proper pressure or not. Mm-hmm. So, so the way, uh, you know, now post uh, 2014 uh, IAR2, uh, we can put a stop valve in there with precautions. And that's what we've been trying to teach and coach people to do uh, since that come out. And and so wherever we go, we show them what and how to do that and to do it safely. And you can actually do everything that you need to do is required to do in IR6 by uh, installing uh, what we call a, a transducer valve uh, in uh, so that you can have the transducer. You can do all your testing right from that device. Uh, yeah. What, what else that allows you to do then is to also not only test the transducer uh, fully, fully functionally tested at the, the actual cutout pressure, but also it allows you to remove that transducer if you need to, if it's not working correctly, if it's not providing you a linear output, you can uh, replace it without pumping down the system. Again, yeah. making it easy. You know, yeah. we've taken a job. We've taken a job that used to take us probably about two hours to do per compressor, and we get it down to about fifteen minutes now. Plus, yeah. uh, you know, the 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 client can replace those uh, transducers anytime they need to. If if it fails, it's not reading uh, linearly, etc. And we can replace it right there uh, without a pump down. And of course, that yeah. makes it much safer as well. So. So prior to, you know, 2014, you know, people just didn't do it. You know, yeah. people still don't do it. You know, for, the, for yeah. that matter, there are a lot of people that still do not calibrate their transducers correctly. And, and that's unfortunate because that yeah. is, uh, uh, you know, uh, putting them at risk. Yeah. Uh, 
not it's only also a risk, good way to waste uh, to waste electricity. Like that's a that's a big kilowatt uh, killers is by having, you know, your your transducers not reading correctly. So you know you mm. could be running a much lower uh, suction pressure than what what you actually have to have. So you know that's oh. uh, there's a lot of issues with not calibrating your your transducers. Oh, yes. That is a very good point, and and that's something we tend to not spend a whole lot of time on in in discussing you know as an industry is the fact that these itpm that we do mm-hmm. uh ir6 has has uh, fairly well uh, delineated what each and every items uh, which and every thing that we should do in our systems um but we don't emphasize the fact that we do those things for a reason not to avoid OSHA citations. That's the last reason we do them. Yeah. The, the, the reason we should be doing them is what you just said a few minutes ago. They make our systems and our processes run more efficient. And if they're yep. running more efficient, we're saving money, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and we're keeping the stuff cold or frozen, whatever we're supposed to be doing in our process. At the end of the day, that's really what we're after, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, and you're talking about, I'm assuming when you were talking about calibrating the transducer, you're talking about like a spanner or something to be able to physically raise the pressure up on the, um, like on the, I mean, I've never used one and I will tell, I will go ahead and tell you what, like it's it's been a long time since I've had to test safeties, but I have done valving off the, the, the discharge valve, which I, which I never really liked doing it. That was, that was the way that I was taught to do them. Um, and I, and I've done the exact same thing where I lowered the, the, the cutout setting to whatever the operating pressure was, because I was all, you know, not only was I testing the transducer, I'm also testing that that relay will open up and shut that compressor down. So you, you do get that, but you, but you're not, you're not getting the transducer up. So is that what you were saying? Do you use like a spanner or something to pump up the pressure to get the (coughs) 200 and you know, 20 pounds or whatever you got it set at? Yes. So so with the use of the transducer valve, we can isolate the transducer away from the process. Mm-hmm. And, and in the process, we open up another port. That port allows us to hook a pump, uh, a, a transducer pump or a pressure calibrating pump, hand pump. Mm-hmm. It can be, a, a, you know, Fluke makes some uh, uh, yeah. meters that have pumps on. So you, you hook it up there. You can pump it up to cut out pressure and shut down the compressor uh, offline. So we're not using processed oh, fluid yeah. or gas to do that. Yeah. And then at the same time, we can we can then, uh, once we've tested the cutout, we can bleed all of that pressure off of there and now do a full, uh, full uh, calibration uh, from uh, zero. If it's running a negative, you can pump it down to a negative to, to check uh, the zero uh, on the negative side and uh, check full calibration uh, and not just one point, but you can do four points at least. Yeah. You, you know, what are, what are like when you were an inspector, what are, what are some of the common things that you saw? Like what, what was, you know, in a spe- this would be good for listeners to go and check, you know, their systems, but what, what even now with what you're doing, what do you, what's the common things that you see out there that, that are going to get these customers an issue, you know, in trouble? Well, one thing, uh, and this should be fairly clear to everybody, is number one is document what you say and and do and keep that documentation current and accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times, in, especially in this industry, we, we saw, for lack of better terms, a lot of BS, you know, where somebody yeah. would say, this is what, what I'm doing, uh, but the documentation didn't reflect that. Um, yeah. And then you would have somebody say, oh, I do that all the time. Show me your documentation. Well, I haven't documented it. Well, yeah. you know, the old saying, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And that's yeah. kind of what OSHA will look at as well. So that is the number one thing. The number two thing is is what I, I talked about earlier, is making sure that, that, uh, that you're doing the uh the the tough things you're doing the things that that you know need to get done we've talked about calibration we talk about tests we and and we talk about all of these things but then doing the follow-up when you see uh deviations or you see discrepancies in what you're supposed to be doing and again when you're completing something 
you know, yes, complete it, but also document if you had some results to report because results are just as important in anything, especially when yeah. we're looking at calibration and testing. If I calibrate a transducer, I want to know what the results of that calibration were. If I had to replace a transducer, for example, because it was nonlinear, I want to make sure I'm documenting that from a standpoint of now I have a history, a history of hey, this transducer went out in 2015, uh, 2016, it went out again. Well, does that tell me something or, or something that I need to look at uh, more, more, uh, more in depth, I should say? Yeah. So it's things like that. Uh, then then a, certainly I look at the next piece, and we haven't really touched on this too much, Josh, is, is the mechanical integrity when it comes to insulated pipes. And, and yeah. I see this still quite often where you've got all kinds of holes drilled in pipes uh, yeah. looking for the needle in a stack of needles. That's what yeah. I call it. So, um, And it's those sort of things that we really need as an industry address and, and hopefully, uh, I'm hoping that IAR and will take on some of this because, you know, I, I keep, uh, you know, prodding on that issue and, uh, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll address that over the next few years. Yeah. What do you think of the IAR, like the book six that, that just came out? Well, uh, you know, I think it's an excellent tool. Uh, yeah. You know, at least it lays out in, in uh, specificity on exactly what you need to do. Yeah. Unfortunately, it also uh, sets sets up the industry, you know, so so an industry that is not doing those things is set up for an OSHA citation, you know, yeah. so because you look at IR6 and IR6 uh, is regagap for the most part for yeah. uh, that industry and for the refrigeration industry. So so even if you're not doing one of those things, that's subject to a citation. Uh, so and and. At the end of the day, there's really no excuse for not doing those things because it's laid out there pretty clear. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, you know, because it's out there in the clear, it's subject to a citation if you're not doing those things and documenting you're doing those things. And unfortunately, our industry and this industry, for the most part, there are a lot of people that, that are not doing those things and maybe, quite frankly, don't understand what they should be doing either. So, yeah. Uh, so, so what about in the cases, because I have heard people argue this point, but like, what if you can prove that your process is safe, even if it doesn't, isn't necessarily following, because I, I, I feel like that happens a lot in like the, the, like the oil industry and stuff like that. Like they, they have a lot of trade secrets, you know, and I mean, at least from some of the, some of the things that I've been told or some of the classes that I've been taught, you know, they were saying that if you could, as long as you can provide, pr- prove that your process is safe and you're taking steps to keep it safe, you could, you, you could necessarily not get cited, you know, based on, you know, them saying, you know, bring, bringing something up from the IAR6 or. Well, you know, I, I'm not aware of any of those situations, Josh, where, where uh, somebody has said that I'm operating it safe in my in my days with OSHA, if if I looked at Regagap and the Regagap says, uh, you know, you have to, for example, API is a, a oil and gas uses API codes and standards, mm-hmm. and if the the code says that you have to inspect a vessel every ten years, or the the piping has to be every five years, and these are the things that you have to do, and the the facility didn't do those things, that was a citation every day. Yeah. Okay. And we never had anybody argue that argue that uh, uh, we don't have to do those things for these reasons. There are reasons where you may not have to follow that API standard, but it it applies to risk based inspections, et cetera, uh, yeah. which I think the ammonia refrigeration industry should move towards a little bit towards that as well. And I've had several presentations on risk based inspections as well. So, so. Um, no, uh, if if it the regagap in my mind, if the regagap says this is what you need to do, uh, and you're not doing those, those are right for a citation, and rightfully so because yeah, you have no reason not to. So. Yeah, and the scenarios I'm talking about weren't necessarily they just took different steps, um, and, and not like 
I can't even, I wish I wouldn't even brought it up. I can't even remember what the situation was, but, right. um, you know, it, it's, it wasn't necessarily them not doing it. It was just, they had a different process. Um, and I think that that process can, you know, uh, got questioned. Um, well, one of the things I, I wanted to mention here too, Josh, and, and you asked this question earlier, what I thought about, uh, the IR six and, you know, some yeah. of the rugged gaps and, and this is one area that, I have brought up quite often, especially in presentations that I've given at RITA and, and some IR6 uh, uh, events, mm-hmm. is the fact that most of these committees, and, and I sat on a committee with IR6, uh, and I'm on other committees uh, outside of the ammonia refrigeration industry, nice. but, but uh, the ammonia refrigeration industry is the only committees that I sat in where I didn't believe the representation was there that needed to be there. Uh, mainly yeah. because I, I see manufacturers there. I yeah. see consultants there. Yeah. And then I see some, you know, some industry folks there, but yeah. there really needs to be more people uh, that are, that are representing the people that actually have to do this stuff. You know, yeah. just like we talked about ammonia refrigeration uh, cutouts, the, the cutouts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If there was somebody there who's actually had to do this stuff, we would recognize that there has to be a, a better way. Yeah. And then that we can create standards and codes to address those issues. Um, yeah. Again, goes back to what we said earlier where, where I said, you know, if something's hard to do, people, one, will find a way not to do it, two, won't do it, or they'll figure out a way around it. You know, those yeah. are usually the, the three things that happen. None of them are good, you know? Nope. So for industry, what we need to do is, is get the people in the rooms, operators, maybe engineers that have to have actually gotten their hands dirty doing some of these things and say, okay, this is the problem. This is what we need to do to fix it rather than having, you know, uh, manufacturers, nothing wrong with the manufacturer there. They can certainly bring that input, but just like in everything, when it comes to PSM, we have to to get involvement by everybody and and get that uh, uh, yeah, piece of it I, in there too. I would agree with that. I tr- so I was on um, you know I I did I reviewed some of the uh, of some of the book six and I know that that IAR did put it out for for the field to review, but there's just not that that much exposure to what like what you're saying, kind of the boots on the ground guys, like the service techs, the operators, um, and and I don't. It, I don't know for a fact. I've had Don Faust on, you know, Don. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he, he touched a little bit um, on this, but I, you know, I know that they did take it out to people, but how many people got, um, you know, actually got to throw some input in there. And, and I do think that the, these are way book six is way better than, than um, the B one Oh nines, you know, th- yes. those were oh, yeah. not useful at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, we, just to, uh, you know, reiterate what you just said, you know, we developed our own software here to manage PSM programs and PS, uh, you know, all the ITPM uh, and rounds that people have to do that are essentially outlined in IR6. And we've created that such that it, it essentially, when, when our clients get it, it's already set up for them to go, uh, et cetera. Once they put all of their, their equipment data in there, all the inspections and tests and all the ITPM that required in IR6 are all ready to go. We just have to yeah. sign responsibilities and accountabilities. And I will tell you that every time we do this for a new client, that client is blown away by saying, uh, how come you made up all of, They think we made up these things. So oh, they yeah. think we made up requirements for them. And, and we say, no, when we take IR6 and we show them what's in IR6 and they say, oh, I had no idea that that's what we we're supposed to be doing. So, wow. So, yes, I don't think uh, that it is out there. And I know I have conversations with with other people in the industry that do similar things that, that, that I do and we do. And they have the same issue, and and it's it, it's a it's a shame that we couldn't get more of these the input from more of these uh, folks in there. Whether or not we could or not, and yeah. how we go about that, I don't know. But certainly, I think that's something we need to to do a better job at as an industry. Yeah, yeah.
Okay, so um, Rick, one of the things you talked about a second ago was the risk-based um, inspection. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yes, well, you know, to to give you some background in this, you know, the, the process industry outside of ammonia refrigeration a number of years ago developed what they call risk-based inspections because, you know, uh, in, a, in a process industry such as, uh, you know, chemical plant, oil and gas or refinery, there's thousands of pieces of equipment and miles of pipe, as you know. So, yeah. so if you look at uh, the API codes and standards, they would require that those uh, pipes and vessels be inspected on some frequency. And it's a set frequency. So five years in piping, 10 years on vessels, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. that would require each of those pieces of pipe, each of those vessels to be inspected at that frequency. Now, some of those vessels, we know that, and this is the same in the ammonia refrigeration industry, some some of those vessels are at lower risk than others. So for example, yeah. you may have a vessel that has uh, uh, a very non-toxic material in there, but because they're part of the, the covered process, they still have to be inspected. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then you have some other uh, things that have really high toxic materials in uh, that uh, still get inspected at the same frequency. So what risk-based inspection does, it allows you to take those those assets that you use for those inspections and tests and move those to, uh, to uh, items of higher risk than others. Uh, in, in essence, you can save some money uh, by not having to inspect those things as frequently, but at the same time, you might want to look at inspecting those things that, that are of higher risk more frequently. So rather than every 10 years, I do a high risk vessel every five years because, because oh, of the okay. risk. Yeah. Risk is driving me to do the inspection, right? So yeah. we should do the same thing. And I, you know, I advocate doing the same thing in the ammonia refrigeration industry. Uh, for example, I can look at a high pressure receiver and, and you, anybody could for the most part and then say, Hey, I, no, no sense of me doing a uh, thickness measurement of that uh, vessel when everything looks good, the paint's good, don't have any paint bubbling or and et cetera. Yeah. Maybe even have a little rust on there, but man, I have a little rust on 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 my car every once in a while. It doesn't mean it's yeah. it's it, it's something wrong with it, you know. So, yeah. so, but on the other hand, I know that I may have a a suction pipe, for example, that's insulated that cycles through uh, hot and cold. Uh, uh, weekly you know so yeah. it, it gets it gets cold and then it, it warms up uh, on the weekend and then it gets cold again now that's that's right for for corrosion under insulation that is a high yeah. risk and yeah. especially especially if i'm running that pressure higher and lower now i uh, the risk is increased now yeah. what i can do is take that resource that i that i use to inspect all of this other stuff that is low risk and I can put my resources and, and resources, when I say resources, time, money, materials, et cetera, yeah. On, yeah. on doing those inspections. For example, I can look at that suction piping alone and only look at that every five years or so uh, or yeah. 10 years. And then, uh, you know, forego inspections on some of that other stuff that has lower risk. And that's what risk-based inspection is. We kind of develop it to meet the, the need, looking again at, at risk and 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 we're all familiar with the risk matrix hopefully when we use it in a pha and we're mm-hmm. applying that same risk evaluation uh to our inspection processes and it, it can go go beyond there we're just talking about piping and vessels yeah. it could go into uh uh, uh cutouts etc you know mm-hmm. for example we we have to test our cutouts uh annually yeah uh, some of those cutouts are of low risk you know, a suction cutout, yeah, temperature cutout may be of low risk. So I may not need, not need to do that annually. But again, yeah. I have to do that based on a risk evaluation. So I wonder if because this almost sounds similar to what I was talking about earlier. So if you if you did like so even testing out uh, like a uh, the low pressure cutout, which really isn't gonna gonna you know have any kind of uh, consequence to it is that something you could look at and ju- and just based on it not being so even though we still have the requirement of of testing these is that something that you can skip testing because uh, you know the risk based yeah if you have a risk based program you could actually do that and, and yeah. here here's the justification for that so 
and here's also the the catch, uh, uh, the gotcha on this. Okay. So, so let's say that I'm doing a PHA and I'm doing the PHA of your facility. And one of the safeguards that you list, because I have a cause consequence that could result in an exposure or safety issue, and you list the safeguard as the suction cutout. That's the, mm-hmm. the safeguard that you list. Then by definition, I have to test that safeguard. Okay, so I have to test to make sure it works. Now, how often I need to test can really be up to you based on your risk. Okay, yeah, Uh, and your risk evaluation. You still have to do the risk evaluation. You can't say, "Well, I'm just not going to do it because I don't see it's a high risk." Okay, you need to document why you're not doing that. Okay, yeah. So, so on the other hand, let's let's say where we never and a lot of the PHAs that that I see and we do. You know, the suction uh, cutout is not a safeguard that gets mentioned too often as, yeah. a, as a safeguard because, you know, what's the hazard, uh, you know, of of getting too low or something like that, you know, other than yeah. economics, you know. So so uh, in that case, it's not listed as a safeguard, but IAR6 says that we need to test it annually. So that's the gotcha there. So so one says we need to do it annually. The other one says I, I shouldn't have to do it anyway because, uh, you know, there's it poses no risk. I, I, it's not mitigating any risk for me. So yeah. this is one of the issues you have to to uh, to look at from a risk based inspection and document if we're not going to do it. You need to make sure that it's well documented so that uh, if somebody does come in and inspect your facility, you have documentation to show them yeah. exactly why you're not doing it and maybe why you're not doing it the frequency of what Regagap says. Yeah. Bringing that up, bringing that up perhaps too, we, you have to keep in mind we're, we're throwing out IR6s as, as Regagap for everybody yeah. and it doesn't have to be. You know, I can create Rick's Regagap uh, if I want to as long as it's as, as stringent as IR6. And yeah. it specifically points out the things that we as a we as a facility are going to do. Yeah. So then, okay. All right. So I get it. So if you if you did have something, you know, you need to definitely do the risk based inspection. Call out why you don't feel like you need to do the 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 frequency, and then at that point, it's documented. You know, uh, but as long as you can, you know, whatever you say, you're going to do it. Whatever frequency, you probably still have to make sure that that's done. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I would assume. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Is is first of all, you do the assessment, uh, you document that assessment that that meets your risk mitigation criteria uh, and your risk reduction criteria, and then document uh, you know how frequent it needs to get done based on that uh, analysis, and, and make that part of your 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 total analysis and documentation process, uh, and then going forward, making sure that you. Of course, uh, do this, those inspections and tests in accordance with your assessment. Yeah. You know, I had the first time I ran into um, an OSHA inspector, he he came in. Uh, it was early in the morning, semi-early, probably like 830 or something. And he came in. I had no idea who he was. He walked into the control room and he looked at me and he said, hey, where's your uh, PM books? And I, and I was like, I, I don't know. And so right then he said, OK, well, where's your boss? And then he, you know. So, cause there, I mean, you know, all that documentation we're, we're, we, even as operators, I was an operator back then. Um, you know, you're, you're expected to, to know where that, where to get that information at and, and everybody, you know, in the department is expected to. Yeah. And, and again, Josh, it, it goes back to, you know, the type of inspector you get, you know, and, yeah. and I, I can't overemphasize that. And I think you're, you're alluding to that as well is, is that you may have an inspector that that is uh, is focused nothing more than on PM, or they're focused nothing more, and believe it or not, focused on whether or not you're having PM PSM meetings or not, yeah. which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my <laughs> life. But but uh, and yeah, and I've had people when I actually work for OSHA, you know, come up to me and say, "Hey, they they are not doing their monthly meetings," and I said, "Well, why do they need to do a monthly meeting?" It says, "Well, that's part of employee tip." participation I says well and and I don't use colorful words too often but I said you know that is just not true employee participation has nothing to do with meetings 
Yeah. You know, if it had anything to do with meetings and everybody would just, that's all they would do is meetings all the time. And that would keep us from keeping, keep us from having any incidents in the world. Right. Yeah. No, no. Participation is, is involvement. And you and I mm-hmm. have, have talked about this from even the IR6, you know, how that was developed or IR2 was developed is participation by the people who can help us reduce risk. Okay. Yeah. You and I both know if if I'm doing training, uh, if I'm doing the training, I'm the, I'm going to prepare for that training. But if I'm the person that's being trained, I have to do nothing to prepare for that training. I just have mm-hmm. to show up, right? Yeah. Uh, and they say that in training, you pick up about ten to fifteen percent is the retention of all training that you get. But oh, I wow. believe I believe that. Uh, that is much higher. I think it's 75 to 80% if you're actually preparing and doing the training yourself, you're leading the training. Yeah. So what should we be doing? We should have be having our folks leading that training. That's employer participation. That's engagement. That's involvement. And that's what yeah. we want. I don't want people at a meeting. I want them participating and engaged. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had I worked for um, for a food distribution center up in in Columbus, Ohio, and so I had to, that was my first taste of PSM. Um, they you know they sent us out to to GCAP out there in Garden City to uh, uh, you know for me to get more f- familiar with it, and I did learn a lot while I was there. And and I remember like isn't employee participation is like it, no matter what anybody and everybody at that facility needs to know that there's ammonia at the facility and the hazards of ammonia. Um, and I'm, I, it's been a while since I've, uh, I've looked all this up, but you know, that was something we didn't necessarily do meetings, but we, you know, we would stop and, and talk to people and ask them if they knew where to find the, uh, MSDS or whatever. I can't remember what it is now. MSDS. Yeah, SDS. SDS. Yeah. Oh, SDS. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had to make sure everybody knew, you know, where to find that stuff, what was going on, where to evacuate to. And, um, you know, the, the company that I was working for did pretty well at managing the, the PSM program and making sure that we were, right. you know, staying, you know, as compliant as we could be. You know, one of the questions I'd always ask, and since you mentioned it, uh, when I used to work with OSHA, we'd interview employees all the time. And one of the, the questions that was always on the list was, do you know what ammonia smells like? And you'd be surprised <laughs> at how many people said, I have no idea, but yet they've been trained on it. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and that goes to looking at your training, you know, and, and, uh, and, I could get into that subject and talk about training. Uh, we could probably spend another hour on that one, but we won't. Nice. It, <laughs> That'll be the next one. <laughs> we'll talk about training. Okay. I, I do wish that I, I saw a little bit better like safety out there. Um, I think it's just so, you know, OSHA is not big enough to be able to catch everything. Not even close. I mean, I, I would, I would, I would be shocked to, or I'm pretty sure the percentage is really low as far as what actually gets inspected versus what's going on out there in real time. Because, you know, there's, there, there's ammonia everywhere. There's small little mom and pop shops that, you know, are under the 10,000 pounds that are just operating, you know, like the wild, wild west. And um, I would, think that you know one of the focuses at some point should be how do you how do we get that information to them you know yeah i i agree you know one of the things that we do josh here is um and we started this several years ago that that we have and we are uh what we call psm coordinators for a number of facilities so so mm-hmm. as a psm coordinator we're uh, we look at our role as not necessarily to, you know, to dictate everything that they do. We're there as as a mentor, a coach, uh, to coach those people that are at the facility every day how to do the right things, and and at this at the same time, show them how to do it efficiently so that it becomes easy to do. And you yeah. know, I keep emphasizing the fact that you know, compliance is easy if you have the right tools. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to equip people with the right tools to make it easy so that that it is not a burden to to do ITPM. 
It's easy yeah. to do and it's simple yeah. to do. And number one, at the end of the day, I should say not only are you in compliance, but but also your your uh, facilities, as we talked about already, are running more efficient. You're working less because yeah. you're doing the things that you need to do to keep that system running uh, uh, at, at peak performance all the time. So so again, you know, I keep saying and I'm going to say it over and over again is is we just need to give people the right tools to make yeah. it easy for them to to uh, to stay in compliance, but also to do the things that are required for them to do to, to keep yep. those systems running. And that's what we believe we do quite well is we provide them those tools. We actually get our hands dirty. We do these things. We do these things in the field and we actually get to see what our clients have to do every day. And when we see what they do, now we can come up with a solution to, to make it easier to do so that, so that uh, it's getting done, but it, it isn't a burden anymore. People feel yeah. good about that. And, yeah. and we see this quite often with a lot of our clients where they'll say, hey, I didn't realize we were supposed to do that. But now that we know how to do it and you showed us how to do it where it's much easier, rather than eight hours a day doing this, it's taking yeah. us eight minutes, you know, yep. so... Yeah. Simplify the process. That's one of the things that I've always, yeah, because it's not, I mean, you're totally right. It's human nature. Even, even us guys as like service techs, when we walk up to a piece of equipment that we don't understand, um, you know, you automatically get this feeling that, oh man, I don't want to work on this or somebody may, you know, and it's because of that, you know, how much um, resistance, you know, we have to, to doing things that we're uncomfortable with. And so the more you simplify these processes, um, you know, the easier, the more sustainable they are, you know, and, and the better they're actually followed. Oh, yeah. 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 We we had a client. This was uh, about two years ago. Uh, we had uh, uh, offered to be their PSM coordinator. Not again, not as a full time role. What we do is is we're in there. Uh, you know, most of our work is virtual. We do some training, obviously, in person, et cetera, nice. but if they need to. But but most of it, our role as a PSM coordinator, what we want is is to be able to take, say, another operator or somebody who wants to to be PSM coordinator. Uh, we can we can work alongside them until they feel comfortable about doing that. Um, but you know, think about the industry and the ammonia refrigeration industry as a whole. The the, the turnover rate is is uh, yeah. you'd be quite surprised is is every three years. You know, yeah. so so you take you take a, a PSM coordinator that's been there, you know, three years, and they move on to another lo- location, or they get promoted, or 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 something else happens. Now somebody's starting all over again. You yeah. know, uh, if 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 they don't have a good succession plan in place, which most don't. Uh, so what we do is we kind of we fill that gap for them. So so we can be their PSM coordinator when. And, and give and take, you know, a little bit more time here or there. Once you get up to speed, we do less uh, with the hopes of you doing more, you know, yeah. because we, we want the, the people that are actually doing the work every day to be the ones that are learning. And, and we just provide that. We provide the experience. We provide that knowledge. And, and, and we're really good at teaching and, and coaching, too, and mentoring. Nice. Well, you know, that's, uh, man, that's just so awesome. Why, Rick, why don't you, um, do, can you go ahead and give out your, um, company information and, and ways that, that, um, you know, some of our listeners can contact you if they're interested in your services and, and, and stuff like that. Well, you can always contact or visit our webpage or webpage is www.psolutions with an S spelled out. Uh, dash or hyphen LLC.com and uh, all of our contact information is on there. Uh, you can always reach me directly uh, via direct uh, phone. Uh, I'll give you my cell phone. Anybody can call my cell phones, 281-745-7554. Or you can call our office here and the uh, office number is 832-637-7925. And and, uh, you know, if you call the office, uh, you know, you can contact myself or you can contact Amanda uh, uh, Seffert and she will uh, connect us to the right uh, uh, person. Nice. Well, Rick, I really appreciate your time. We're definitely going to have to do this again. Maybe next time we can talk about that training 
<laughs> oh yes, yes, that's a good subject that that we love tr- talking about, and and we can all do a better job of training. I think. Yeah, most certainly, most certainly, Rick. I appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on, and and we'll see you here again soon. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Josh. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Yep. See you. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. You too. All right. <clears throat> I uh, I really appreciate Rick coming on. He, he offered a great perspective on, um, you know, what it's like to be an OSHA inspector um, and come in and inspect a facility. You can tell that he's got years and years of experience of, of doing this stuff. All right, fellas. Well, that is going to be it for today's show. Um, you know, if you have any kind of comments on what we discussed earlier with the um, with using VFDs on evaporators, please don't hesitate to give me a shout. I really would love to have a defining conversation on what we can do to address this issue in the industrial refrigeration field. Um, and if you have, uh, you know, if you have some experience in the field and you want to come on the podcast, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you can send me an email at my email address, which is josh at inside the pipe.com. Um, I normally spell that out, but I think that most of you guys got that by now. All right, guys, y'all have a good day, night, whatever it is. And we will see you next time.